Are you interested in free theological training? Our flagship sponsor, Midwestern Seminary, offers free theological training through their For the Church Institute. This semester, they launched three new classes, New Testament 1 and New Testament 2 with Dr. Patrick Schreiner and Missional Leadership with Dr. Charles Smith. Both have been guests of the show. These classes, along with others they offer, The Story of Everything with Jared Wilson, The Trinity with Dr. Matthew Barrett, and more are all free and accessible to you, your community group, or your church to complete at your own pace. You can learn more and sign up to begin at mbts.edu slash knowingfaith. Again, that's mbts.edu slash knowingfaith for some free theological training from Midwestern Seminary. Go check it out. Hey everyone, this is Kyle. I wanted to give one just brief note of context. The episode that you're about to listen to was recorded over a month ago, and that'll be true for a few of our upcoming episodes as well. I know that for many of us, our attention has been drawn to Israel in recent days, some of the ongoing events happening there and in the Middle East. These episodes that you're going to hear will continue to explore the story of Exodus as we follow along with God's covenant-keeping promises to his people. I know that for many of us in this season, we are praying, praying that God would mend things with his mercy, that he would bring his grace to bear on impossible situations, and that he would thwart the purposes of evildoers. We ask that you would continue to pray in the churches that you're a part of, that God would move in power and in might. These episodes will not be exploring current events, cultural events. It's not what Knowing Faith has done, is, or will do in the future, but we will continue to follow along with the story of scripture as it unfolds in Exodus. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Grace and peace. You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. Here we go. And we're and we're live. (laughs) What if what if what if all of a sudden I just changed up the intro? I'm doing it right now. I guess Engineer Brad's gonna keep all this stuff. Let me try it. Let me here, I'll try a different intro. uh, welcome back to another episode of Knowing Faith Podcast with my colleagues, Jen Wilkin and JT English. Um, I feel weird. Don't do that. Coming, uh, okay. Uh, coming at you from... <laughs> Let's get ready to <laughs> do that one. <laughs> yep. Uh, across two different time zones, friends have united together once again to discuss the Bible. Okay, and here we are. Yeah. yeah, I do need to stop. All right. Yeah. Now we are talking about the book of Exodus. And you know that you've been following along this season. If you just got this episode, this is going to be a great one to tune into because there's a lot of fireworks. Uh, the plagues are... <laughs> I need to like the soundboard. I can't keep making the (laughs) but we are dealing with the plague. So maybe you got this one because somebody listened to it and was like, hey, this is a really interesting episode. Uh, But you're thinking, I don't know the story so far. Well, guess what? We've been going through Exodus and we are using the book of Exodus to guide us along this journey. But what we're doing this season is not like what we've done in past seasons where we've gone through a book of the Bible and just treated it line by line. 
We're taking a different approach this season because we're using the passages of Exodus to explore themes, themes that kind of ripple, uh, so to speak, before Exodus and beyond Exodus, themes that reverberate before Exodus and beyond Exodus. And so we just want to explore that, and we want to explore some of these themes together. And so today we're turning our attention to the plagues. We've been following along on the journey of Moses. Uh, last episode, we looked at uh, the burning bush, and we looked at the divine and holy call of Moses and how we see other holy callings uh, throughout the story of Scripture. But today, we're turning our attention to the plagues. I'm going to get us started by reading just a portion of Exodus, and then we're going to start dealing with, uh, I think, maybe an angle that is often uh, overlooked when it comes to the plagues that we find in Exodus. So let me read Exodus 7, verse 8, and I'll read all the way to uh, verse 19. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh so that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said." Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out into the water and stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals and their ponds and all their pools of water so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Okay. So, so far in this story, we have encountered the people of Israel enslaved in Egypt, and we have discovered Moses, who is God's chosen deliverer, who having been brought through blood and water is now going to lead God's people through blood and water. But there is before this a bit of a showdown. Uh, there is a, a battle that's happening here. And so I would love to just kind of begin here. Jen, when you think about the plagues, Mm -hmm. what for you are some of the things that stand out broadly about what we find in this narrative? Before we start kind of diving in mm -hmm. to some of the details, what are some of the kind of first observations that you're making and conclusions you're drawing from them when you when you encounter the plagues? Well, I think the first thing we have to pay attention to is how it's, it's four chapters, so it's a big chunk, right? Um, and the language of the plagues is very rhythmic, but I think because it's four chapters, a lot of times the only way that we've ever heard about them is sort of like in bullet points, but very few of us have spent a lot of time just like saying, why, why are they worded the way that they are? 
And if you pay attention to the rhythmic language, it makes you think, oh, I remember there was rhythmic language like in Genesis chapter one when we had the creation account. So that's something that should pop up in your head. And then when you start paying attention to the rhythms, you realize that the first nine plagues um, occur in three distinct cycles. The, the first three go together, the next three go together, and the next three go together. Okay. And then if you're paying attention to the way that they progress, you'll notice that at the beginning, they are affecting um, the Israelites and the um, Egyptians. And as yeah. they progress, we see that then they only begin to affect the Egyptians that Israel is spared. Um, yeah. But that's a, that's something we have to think about is like, why does God send judgment on Egypt that also spills over onto his own people? I think that's a, an important question to ask. It's important for the rest of the Bible, how we understand the rest of the Bible. Yeah. Um, and then I think the question that most of us never ask, again, and this is where I always say like, have more curiosity, allow yourself to ask curious hmm. questions, is um, why are there plagues at all? And then mm -hmm. why are there so many? Uh, you know, God doesn't have to do this at all, but he said mm -hmm. why he's going to do it. He's doing it so that the Egyptians will know that he is exactly who he has told, you know, in our previous episodes, exactly who he told Moses he was at the, at the burning bush. So what's the big why? Like, why are the plagues happening at all? But then why are there 10? Like, God could have knocked this out in one. And yeah. um, so that's a that's something we can talk about as we move through the episode, if you want. No, and I, I want to come back to that, so don't let me lose it. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think one of the things that's um, that was surprising to me um, whenever I first started looking at the plagues and really how they are, are uh, what their purpose is for mm -hmm. um, in the story of Exodus and then how that lines up with kind of what we see God doing broader, uh, brought more broadly throughout the story of scripture is the polemical nature of the plagues. Now, mm -hmm. JT, when I say polemical, what do I mean? Yeah, maybe a helpful way for us to think about it is like two different poles of an argument or two different ways of thinking about something. Basically, what God is showing here is that he is God and the Egyptian gods aren't. And it's he's doing, doing so almost in like a uh, I want to say polemical, but I want to define, use the term to define the term, but mm. in a way that is so highly contrasted yeah. that there can be no doubt that the mm -hmm. Egyptian gods are not God and that the Lord is God. He wants them to worship him alone. I mean, even just the basic idea of like regional, uh, like you have Egypt and Babylon and Assyria and the Greeks uh, and the Romans eventually, is that they had regional gods or yeah. national gods. And one of the things that God is doing here is he's saying, I am God over Egypt. Pharaoh and these other creation gods aren't God at all. I'm, I'm the one who is God even in Egypt. That's right. That's right. And we, we've talked a little bit about this already with the serpent king. You know, Pharaoh wasn't just like a king, like we think of a king. Pharaoh had this kind of divine right philosophy around him where he was like a divine being or a son of a divine being himself. And so this idea that he, uh, like right out of the gate, honestly, before the formal plagues even start, the miracle of the staff, the serpents is like a picture from Jump Street of like, okay, God is going to overthrow the power of this serpent king. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that's, it's an important part of this that the plagues are not just this, like, they're not merely a demonstration of God's power, though they are certainly a demonstration of God's power. They are specifically a demonstration of God's power angled towards the deliberate overthrow of Egyptian mythology and Egyptian religion, right? The, the yeah. Egyptian mythology and religion that uh, Israel for 
hundreds of years had been surrounded by. Mm-hmm. Jen, you were going to say something a moment ago? Well, yeah. So, you know, when when Moses goes to Pharaoh and tells him the plan, Pharaoh responds, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? Like, he's exactly. like, I don't know who he is. And so what the plagues are doing is they're telling Pharaoh exactly who he is. And so he's going to address the, the pantheon specifically, the Egyptian pantheon and the plagues. Um, and a way that we can think about how he's doing this is if you think about the creation account, because just spoiler alert, what we're going to see here is a decreation account um, mm. for Egypt. So Pharaoh has basically, in 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 the pattern of other kings, uh, other snake kings, like Nebuchadnezzar has said, you know, look at everything that I have done and built. Mm-hmm. Um, and so God is now going to say, um, look at how I'm going to unbuild everything that you built. That's Tower of Babel. You know, it's it's a repeat. It's on repeat throughout the Bible. And it's and it's a mega theme in Re- Revelation, right? He's going to undo and then redo everything. So what we see here is him um, saying, "I'm going to decreate your place of that you have ordered according to your own plans, and I'm going to do it according to the gods that you worship." And if you think about the creation account, here's here's a helpful skill when you're looking at anytime God sends judgment. When the when the world is created, there are three main spaces that are um, spoken of. Um, there are there's the sky and the seas and the land, and and then there's a there's a little bit of a further division when we come to seas. You could say the waters because you'll sometimes yeah. see discussions of like what happens to the sea and then what happens to the rivers and the streams. So there there can be different discussions of judgment falling on salt water and fresh water, um, but those three domains or, uh, or areas of dominion are uh, are 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 referenced on repeat throughout the Bible. I don't think we often pay attention to them. So like one of our favorite hymns, the three of us would be holy, holy, holy. And you think of the line, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. And that's a that's a reference to that idea. So huh. what we'll see in the plagues is, I, I did, I, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and anytime you think about those three, you'll you'll start to see them showing uh-huh. up in in moments like this. So you're going to see that these plagues, while they are certainly addressing the pantheon, the pantheon, by no coincidence, in an agrarian society, rules over the earth and the sky and the sea. Uh, mm-hmm. And so these lesser gods are seen to be those who control earth, sky, and sea. And so God is going to say, "No, you don't control the sky. You don't control. You don't control the waters, and you also don't control the land or anything that is living on it." Yes, and I think bringing it back to the creation account um, is exactly what I was hoping because when we think about, and I, I know I keep coming back to this, but the original audience of the Pentateuch, of these first five books, of Genesis, Mm -hmm. is a post-Exodus Israel. That's Mm -hmm. the original receptive audience. So even the creation account itself, this is, the plagues are not the first time that we see the power of God described in the story in a way that's angled towards um, calling into question in a pronounced way the authenticity of the false gods of of the Egyptian and or the Canaanite region. The Mm -hmm. Genesis narrative itself, Mm -hmm. the creation narrative, particularly in Genesis 1, is doing something similar. Now, I want you to hear Mm -hmm. me say, I'm not saying that's all that the Genesis 1 narrative is doing, but Mm -hmm. I am saying it's one of the central things that the Genesis 1 narrative is doing is saying, 
Do you know how you've been surrounded by all of these small demigods who had little fiefdoms throughout creation? Well, guess what? None of them are real. And Yahweh, the one who just, you know, uh, demonstrated his power in the plagues and through the parting of the Red Sea and is now descended uh, on Sinai that you can see, guess what? He's the one who created not just one thing, everything. And he's not just Lord over one little section of it. He's Lord over all of it, and you're his holy and beloved people. That's a huge thing. And the plagues, again, are a demonstration of that kind of uh, polemical power, that argumentative power of this story is not just saying God is powerful, though it is. It's not just showing God is powerful. It's telling Israel the false powers that you have been surrounded by, they cower in their, Mm -hmm. uh, their hollowness in the face of the true power of the creator and sustainer, Yahweh. Yeah, it's also a a strong push against, I think, what is an impulse for people of all time, but certainly in our time, it's a strong push against dualism. This is not like an epic battle between the forces of light and darkness. This is is Yahweh crushing, absolutely Mm -hmm. crushing uh, any, any adversaries. Yeah. And it's not the only, so Genesis, we see this in the creation account. We see it here in terms of the power of God displayed for the purposes of showing the hollowness of false gods. We see it here in Exodus. What are some of the other places that you see this kind of ripple uh, throughout the story of the Bible? Because I, I would say it is a motif. Where else do we find this theme across the story of scripture? Can you think of some other places? I can, but I'm going to make you talk about it. You're, you're being a good podcast host, and you're, you're wanting us to say it, but Kyle and I just a few weeks ago got to be at a very specific place in Israel where I think it's one of the most uh, kind of pronounced places where the prophets of Baal and uh, one of God's prophets meet in a collision and a crash of like, are the gods of this world God or is God God? And Kyle gave one of the most powerful uh, devotions I've ever heard on on King. So Kyle, you need, you need to talk about this, not us, although I'd just be ripping you off if I did. Well, honestly, I don't remember anything I said. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Stop. No, perfect. No, no, I do think that, um, I mean, there are, there are a lot of other places. Mount mm-hmm. Carmel for me sticks out partly because it's been a story that we've been using to disciple my daughter and she's really connected with it. Um, and there's a really wonderful book, uh, that's like, uh, uh it's called the God battle, which is like a, a story about Mount Carmel for kids. If you're like the storybook phase of your discipleship with kiddos. Uh, we are in a, we are in an age where we're spoiled for resources on this. And I thought the mm-hmm. God battle was really, really, really good. I'm sorry. I can't remember who wrote it, but it's fantastic. So check that out. But I think Mount Carmel stands out to me as another clear example of this because of just how significant that story is uh, in the uh, so if, if this story is featuring God overthrowing the false gods of Egypt, as Israel begins to make their home in the Canaanite region, they're not encountering the Egyptian gods as uh, common as they're encountering the Canaanite gods. And chief among those was Baal. Uh, and the prophets of Baal at this point in the period of uh, of God's people, uh, they have the upper hand. Uh, they have the influence, they have the social cachet, and there's really does not look like there's that much left uh, for Yahweh. It doesn't look like there are many that are that faithful. And yet Elijah and all of the cost of bearing witness uh, ascends the mount to do battle with the false god uh, Baal and his prophets. And I think the thing that really surprises me about that story is that the power of God is, but you've all, you've heard this story so many times. They're like, Elijah, like they're throwing water on the altars because 
uh, you know, it's going to make it so much. He wants to show like God is so powerful. He can even, he can send fire down to consume the sacrifice, even if it's wet, um, which like maybe, but you have to keep in mind, like what's happening in the region at that time is a severe drought. Mm-hmm. The most precious thing they have at that moment is water. Mm-hmm. And what's Elijah doing? He's not just challenging the the idol, the like the visible idol of Baal. He's taking the thing that to them right there now is the most precious thing they have in the world, and they have very little of it. And he's throwing it out on top of the altar. It's a confrontation of honestly two idols: the idol mm-hmm. that's up there and the idol that's right here. Uh, and that story always astounds me because I think when we read a story like this, is more of the let me put my pastor hat on here. I'm moving to application too quickly. This is bad. Don't do this in your Bible studies. Sorry, Jen. But like, I think that when we read stories like the plagues, or we read a story like Elijah Mount Carmel, or we think about judges where there's a cycle of it, or Mm -hmm. any of those other passages, I think there's two temptations for us to think about the power of God displayed in confronting the idols of the world, um, and to only think about God's power being exerted towards that. I think there's whole mm. Christian communities that almost exclusively think about God's power being displayed at the idols of the world. Then mm. there's a whole other kind of subset where we never think about confronting the idols of the world and we only talk about confronting the idols of the heart. Mm-hmm. And yet each one of these stories, like the curse of the Nile is confronting the false gods of Egypt, but do you know what it's also confronting? It's confronting every person mm-hmm. in Egypt. And I think including the Israelites at this mm-hmm. stage Absolutely. going going like you know what? Uh, water is something that I'm entitled to. Mm-hmm. Life is something I'm entitled to. This thing just shows up. It, it's confronting, honestly, the idol in their hearts of living in a way that has the presence of God distance from the gifts of God. Uh, and I think that we see this throughout all the, all of the all of the stories that we find in scripture where the power of God is confronting the idols or the false gods of the age is both and. It's It's mm-hmm. never either or. It's not just out there or in here. It's always both. Well, and we're seeing the contrast that also follows us through all of Scripture, the contrast between the earth dwellers and the people of God. And yeah. so, you know, the, I'm, I'm borrowing a phrase from Revelation. I'm cheating and skipping to the end a little bit. But, you know, it's the same thing that we saw really in another decreation, a famous decreation or recreation account, which would be the flood narrative, where mm-hmm. you have the people of the earth who have grown increasingly wicked. And, and in this story, in Exodus, the people of the earth would be um, the people of Egypt, those who have earthbound loves. And so one of the things that God is doing as he births this new nation is he's separating them from those who have earthbound loves and earthbound focus. He's, he's going to turn their attention heavenward. Um, and so there's that theme that's playing out. And then the way that um, judgment is falling on on these, these three kingdoms of earth and sky mm-hmm. and sea, we are going to see again in the book of Revelation, specifically this idea about the waters keeps coming up in Revelation where you have the, the giant's uh, star that falls. Um, first, you have wormwood, and you have the, yes, the yes. something like a star, and 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 those are like massive examples of what we've seen in um, this story here, where Moses is going to throw his, his staff into the Nile, and it's going to turn to blood. And it's this theme of God making wa- uh, uh, sweet water bitter and bitter water sweet. So if you think yes. about what Moses uh, Moses has already shown or will show, I'm sorry, will show Israel once he has liberated them, they're going to get to a place called Mara, 
And he's going to tell Moses to take a log and throw it into the bitter water and the water is going to be made sweet. And, and so this bitter water and sweet water is also related to the idea of what would, would have been known in, to the original audience as dead water, or can you guess what the other thing is? Living, Living water. water right? Dead water is water that isn't fed by anything fresh and you can't use it for anything. It, it looks mm-hmm. like it's a good thing, but it's not good for anything. Living water is flowing and it is, um, it is good for growing things and for keeping yourself alive. And so um, that image gets pulled all the way through. Obviously, Jesus is going to play on it. And so it's no surprise that in the closing chapters of Revelation, what do we see um, flowing from the throne of God? Water and the fact that yeah. it's flowing means that we're to identify it as living water. It's that's right. It's it's it's, it's sweet water, uh, yeah. and so um, all of these themes are are being played with here in Exodus, and then just get carried all the way through. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. Jen, what was that language you used, uh, uh, the first one you just said, the earthbound people? Earth earth dwellers, the people of the earth is the language that that Revelation repeats, but it's also language that it's being borrowed from all these Old Testament accounts. It also makes me think of, I've not thought about this before until right now, so welcome listeners, you are... We are learning too. Learning in real Paul time. Has, mm-hmm. Yeah, Paul has this in mind in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he talks about those who are born of the earth and the, the oh, one absolutely. Who comes from heaven because he loves the people of earth. I mean, even that's uh, right. I, I think that's a really good gospel tie in there of like the one who is in heaven, the, the actual son of God is the one who comes to earth mm-hmm. taking upon human flesh because mm-hmm. he loves us. And mm-hmm. that's, I mean, that's yeah. all, all of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I also think, uh, you know, Kyle, Kyle and I have talked about this passage a lot, especially in the Institute, it's the importance of Colossians chapter one, because I think one of the proclivities of a New Testament people, when there are lots of gods could be, okay, yeah, so now we believe in Yahweh 
and his son, yep. Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. but what, what Paul is making sure he's really clear about doing in Colossians chapter 15 is he's incorporating Jesus into the divine identity. He isn't mm-hmm. a second yeah. God. He is Yahweh. He's the yeah. eternal son That's of right. God. He is the, mm-hmm. for example, the, uh, uh, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven mm-hmm. and on earth. On earth. Uh, mm-hmm. All thrones and dominions and authorities and powers, all things. Come. He's the head of the body, the church, the firstborn from the That's dead. Right. So he is like, he's, he's leaving nothing out to say that mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't have dominion over here. So I think what we see in all of these stories, whether it's the creation account, uh, Egyptian polemics, the prophets uh, having to engage uh, those who are, have, as Calvin would say, idle factories of the heart, or Paul mm-hmm. writing to Colossae, or John writing from Patmos, is every single one of us in all of creation has a desire and inclination to worship the creation, but God is supreme mm-hmm. over all things, and he's demonstrating supremacy specifically through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the king and the Lord over all of creation. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So the the trumpets, the seals, the bowls that we're going to see in Revelation, they're all decreation accounts. Um, that it's no surprise. I cannot wait to do your study on this, Jen. Well, I'm like, I got to get it written, but (laughs) but just the way that it's pulling together, and it's like, and it's it's what we would expect, right? It it amplifies as you as you move through um, through the scriptures, and so by the time we get to Revelation, um, it's on a it's on a total scale. It's not regional like we're seeing here uh, in Egypt. And I think it ties in, you know, JT, I think you're exactly right um, about um, the man from heaven, because what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He actually appeals to the wisdom tradition, which relates directly to this. Who is the fool? It's the one who stores up treasure on earth. Who is Mm. wise? It's the one who stores up Mm. treasure in heaven. And so really, we're seeing that wisdom tradition even speaking into the writings of Moses here in Exodus. Who is the fool? It's Pharaoh. He's the one who stores Mm -hmm. up treasures on earth. He's had them build his storehouses for him. You yeah. know, and and now what? Um, he's gonna he's gonna show his own people um, and the people of Israel that the only treasure they can rely on is the one that's kept for them, unfading and imperishable. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, you know, and I think it is good, and I think it's it's accented even in the first plague with it's not just the Nile, but all those waters, you, all that water you have in clay pots and in wooden vessels. Yeah. throughout all of Egypt, all yeah. of it, like there's nothing that he can't touch. I also think uh, a couple of weeks ago, whenever I was looking at this passage. Uh, it was the first time I'd made the connection. The deliverer, the deliverer in Egypt, Moses, that deliverance passageway through the plagues is a decreation narrative. Mm-hmm. But the coming deliverer of Christ is a recreation narrative. And just like the first, Moses' deliverance is a decreation narrative, turns with taking good water and turning it bad. Mm-hmm. Jesus's first miracle in the recreation is taking water and turning it into wine. Mm-hmm. Like the symmetry of these two deliverers of one who is bringing God's people out by way of demonstrating the power of God in uh, judgment. And the, the this other deliverer who is coming, the better deliverer who's going to take something and make it better. Like the idea that both deliverers start with a miracle around water cannot be happenstance. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It can't be coincidence that Moses is the first plague is this living water turns sour Mm -hmm. and Jesus's first miracle is Is water. It's like, it's not, it's not even just like he took something Mm -hmm. bad and turned it to water. He took water and turned it into something better. Like that is just incredible. Not only that, but something that he's later going to say, this is my blood. Wow. Yeah. You know, I mean the, the, the parallels are meant for us to see. That's right. That's right. I mean, now I, I would not be a good 
I would not be a good Baptist if I didn't ask you guys. Now, this first plague, this first plague where, where Moses takes the staff and turns the, the Nile River into blood, would you call this the first ever staff infection? Oh. And here I thought you were going to ask about turning water into wine as a good no, Baptist. No, you let me down, I was just Kyle. Saying, no, I was Cap just saying. You went for I mean, a dad joke. I did, um, but I had to. Okay, so we, we have this. We've talked about some of these connections, but maybe the listener is like, hey, you guys are making some pretty high-level mm-hmm connections across scripture. That's what we're doing this season. I I think we'd be remiss if we didn't just line out these plagues for them. So we've made some connections about how they're framed, how they're kind of organized around some of the days of creation motifs that we see, how they cycle, the reason for it, some of the way that they're polemical in nature, but what are they? Okay, the first one is the Nile turned to blood. After that, you've got frogs, then gnats, then flies, then uh, Egyptian livestock dying, boils, and I don't mean like a crawfish boil guys i mean like a boil where (laughs) it's something painful on your skin okay uh and then you got hail and then you got locusts and then you've got what darkness darkness Darkness. and then you have the death of the firstborn and i don't want us to get to the death of firstborn today we're going to talk all we're going to do a whole episode on it it deserves a whole episode we're going to do it and the next episode we're going to cover it but when you look at these plagues can i just ask like a a fun question. Which one of these stands out to you yeah, as the one that you'd be like, questions are super fun. <laughs> which one of these stands out to you as the one where you'd be like, all right, Pass. Pharaoh, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to let these people go. Well, I could answer that according to what they actually said, but uh, sure. yeah, no, for me personally, um, I don't know, man, they're all pretty bad. I think it's the, where's the beef for me. Once they're like no more steak, Kyle, I don't know, man. The frog one, I think, would get the frog me. One's frogs pretty nasty. everywhere. Yeah, that it would be just like think about what that actually would be like. Like yeah. frogs everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. Well, like that jumping one too, on you at night. I think that's like my favorite of like a, the irony. You know, I, we don't have time here to to go through like all of the gods that are represented <laughs> in these, but just for fun, that one, uh, the plague of frogs is Heket, the goddess of fertility. And um, there was a law in ancient Egypt that if you killed a frog, you it was punishable by death. And so um, can you imagine then God has the fertility goddess actually be everywhere? Like there's, it's, she's like fertile all over the place and they're trying to not step on them because there's a law about it. I mean, the whole thing is just like so filled with irony. And I kind of love that. But also one dead frog smells terrible. I cannot imagine what a whole mm. bunch would smell like. Hmm. Yeah. I think, I I think for me, it'd probably be the flies. I just, homie, don't play Homie, don't play with flies on my face. And I'd have, I'd have a real guy from South Texas. I'm just imagining that the frogs might be eating up those flies. You know what I'm saying? Maybe. I think the flies were were on eating up the dead frogs would be my guess. (laughs) That's probably more like it. Mm -hmm. Probably more like it is. uh, Mm -hmm. Let me ask this question. The people of Egypt genuinely believed that these gods, Hecate, Ra, that they were out there, right? Like they were out there doing their thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, Egyptian life was oriented around a mythology that was strong and thick and it was everywhere. It was the organizing philosophy of the world. Israel was immersed in it. When we think about false gods today, um, I guess I have two questions. One, are there still false gods today? 
And two, if there are, uh, how do we invoke God's judgment upon them? Like, if this is how God brought judgment to bear on the false gods, like, I don't know, well, I know that there's not a call in the New Testament for us to go stand in large bodies of water and curse them. And I think that if somebody came to you and said, hey, I think God wants me to oppose a false god of this world by going and standing in a large body of water and cursing it with a staff, (laughs) you would probably be like, I'd pray on that one a little bit longer, brother. You know, I'm just assuming it's a dude. That sounds like a dude thing to say. But when you think about this, are there still false gods today? If so, how do we invoke God's judgment upon them? I'd be curious. I think that's important to consider. The first part. Jen can answer the second part. Okay. Perfect. That's what I was wanting you to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. First of all, we don't want to just have kind of a postmodern, secular, Western understanding of the world. That the, That's probably the location that most of our listeners are in, though. I know we have people in all, uh, kind of listening from all parts of the world, but in other parts of the world, there are absolutely like actual idol worship. Like I'm going to take this gold thing and worship it or make this wooden thing and worship it. But we're in no way immune from false gods and idol worship in a increasingly secularized post-Christian West. I just think a lot of that is actually worship of self. We've actually Mm -hmm. put our place and the uh, self-identity in the place of what we used to worship, which was actual wooden idols or gold idols or silver, silver idols. So, yeah, I mean, I, I already mentioned Calvin's quote here, but ever since the fall, our heart has been an idol factory, mm-hmm. uh, and we can't not make them. We will always make them, and even those who are converted to Christ continually have to fight against the urge uh, to worship false gods or false idols. Even like Kyle just mentioned, Israel kind of maybe feeling an entitlement towards the water or uh, a specific thing that God was overcoming and polemically contrasting himself with. So, I think we are always in danger of worshiping false things, whether it's self or other created things. Now, the question is, is what do we do with that, Jen? Mm -hmm. So I think one of the messages, so first of all, you know, you're like, well, Moses did all these great signs and, you know, stuck it to Pharaoh. How are we, how are we going to do that? Well, we're not Moses in the story. And so I think it's important to remember that That's Moses... You say, you say that you're not Moses. You're not Moses. No. Uh, it doesn't mean that we don't have... And I do want to just say, there are things that we learn from Moses' example that we should pay attention to. But in this instance, the way that Moses is acting is he is, he is a type of Christ. Jesus is the true and better deliverer. And so Jesus has conquered all of these things, past tense. We live in the yep. already but not yet, which which means that we're waiting for the consummation of the kingdom, at which point it will become clear um, that these things are all overthrown. And I think that the words in Acts that um, the early church are instructed with are helpful to us, abstain from idols, abstain from anything that's offered to idols. And so that doesn't mean that we only do have a passive approach to these things because idolatry is often joined with injustice of some kind. And we yeah. are meant to be instruments of, 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 of ensuring that people receive justice. Uh, as far as we're able. And so there are times when we are called to act. But in our daily um, endeavors, um, we should be asking, how am I opting in to what the earth dwellers are opting into? Because, Mm -hmm. spoiler alert, you get to the Revelation account, 
And you're going to see that the people of God are sealed, right? And so even though they've endured some suffering, then they're sealed and the suffering falls on the unbelievers, which sounds a lot like the Egyptian plagues, right? Where at first it affects everyone and then it only affects the Egyptians. Um, and not only that, that the earth dwellers are going to be brought to account. And, and, and that we don't want to talk about that. It makes us uncomfortable. But we do see the complete and total judgment of sin take place at the end of the age, which means until that time, we can live circumspectly as citizens of heaven uh, among the earth dwellers. That's good. Um, I got to ask one more question, and it's a weird one. And I think it's the kind of question that after we get off the podcast, you guys are going to be like, don't ask us questions like that. Okay. So if we need to cut it, Brad, <laughs> Brad's I'm, ready. I'm giving us the note. Finger on the button. When we think about false gods, Hecate, Ra, Baal, Moloch, are these false gods imagined or are they real spiritual beings? JT? Do you have a thought on this? I, I, I am, I'm asking this partly because I think it, and this is my, this is my context note. Mm -hmm. This is, uh, you know, there's, there's other, we have other podcast peers out there mm -hmm. uh, who are doing great work that we have sent our listeners to. And we said, Hey, go check them out. They're a great resource. And one of the largest of our podcast peers out there has made a real big push to try to like, make it clear that in the, the ancient mindset, we're not talking about, we're not talking about manufactured gods of the imagination and that it's best to not think about it that way, that we are talking about real spiritual beings, fallen, demonic, evil, whatever you want to call them, uh, that do exist and do have some level of influence, power, or authority, though they're subject to God. And these stories are pictures of that. And I think it's, I think it's just fair when we're dealing with something like this, we're like, hey, we're saying these plagues are taking issue with the false. Are we talking about where these plagues are a demonstration that the false gods of Egypt don't exist? Or are they a demonstration of, hey, the false gods of Egypt do exist as spiritual beings, but they are powerless in the face of Yahweh. And they are not who they claim to be. And they are certainly not God of gods, king of kings, lord of lords kind of stuff. Jen? Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> JT pitches me. I no, threw I the JT in the No, I don't mind answering this. I, I really, I don't mind answering this question um, because, um, you know, Kyle, this is like what you do. You, you go, but is there a spiritual thing going on here? Uh, mm -hmm. The answer is yes. Um, mm -hmm. But I think beyond that, I'm like, I lose interest because the New Testament tells us that our battle is against three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we find all three of those things factoring into this story here in Exodus, and we will find them factoring into pretty much every mm -hmm. story throughout the Bible. And so I think my hesitation is, why the emphasis on the devil? Um, I'm fine if we talk about the reality of powers and principalities, but not if that's all we talk about. And mm -hmm. honestly, increasingly, I hear people talking about, you know, the enemy as the problem, um, and no or little conversation about um, their own proclivities um, and the draw that worldly um, systems have on us. And so let's talk about all three. Let's talk about the whole That's unholy good. trinity in balance. In the same way that we don't want to overemphasize the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit, let's not give more power to one aspect of temptation than another. See, you knew you wanted Excellent. to ask Jen that question. I'm so glad that I asked it. 
All right. Well, that's a great place to land because you just really took what I, I, I was throwing that up there. I thought, man, we might flounder on this one. And you went yard on it. So <laughs> thank you, Jim. Um, all right. Uh, you can find Knowing Faith on Instagram, that's Facebook, a and metaphor. Yeah. And I was like, I, I don't are know you what that are means. You, are you is proud that gardening? of gardening? Are you like, is that a gardening good. yard? Is that I what did, you said? Yeah. I love my yard. Yeah. You, and that's, that's all, amazing that's, right now. It was a double entendre. You, um, you can find Knowing Faith on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, if you heard us uh, talk about any resources or products early in the show, check out the show notes for a link to our sponsor's webpage. You can go to the Train the Church website under the Knowing Faith podcast to find resources, discounts, products that we uh, vet and believe in. If you heard us recommend a book, I talked about The God Battle. Uh, our friends over at 10 of those have set up a shop that you can find in the show notes that keeps a log of everything. Every book we recommend in any episode of Knowing Faith, and that goes all the way back into the archives. So if you're ever wondering, like, I know they recommended a book. I get these messages on Instagram all the time. Like, hey, y'all recommended a book in some episode on this. You can go over to 10 of those at the link in the show notes for this episode, and they have all those books there. So there you go. Uh, Way to go, 10 of those. Uh, You can leave us a review over at Apple Podcasts, and we would be uh, happy to consider any questions you have for a future Q&A episode. You can drop them into the review that you leave over there. Check out our sister shows on the Train the Church Podcast Network. They're doing some great work this season. Uh, We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace. Did this episode spark an interest to learn more about Jesus, the Bible, or just theology in general? You can receive free theological training through Midwestern Seminaries for the Church Institute, where you can learn more about the Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, leadership, and more, even at your own pace. Learn more and get started today at ftcinstitute.com. Again, that's ftcinstitute.com for free training on Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, and leadership. Go and check out these incredible resources from our season sponsor.